This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Tensions over oil and gas drilling in Colorado are unrelenting, especially as fracking and people's homes come closer together. We begin with another metro city debating how to deal with fracking. We are placing our community at risk. For what? For the profit of oil and gas? Colorado's highest court decided that bans or moratoriums by local governments to stop oil and gas drilling are unconstitutional. Commissioners have filed two protests with the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission against the drilling applications. The issue has dogged Governor John Hickenlooper virtually since his first day in office. And in a few minutes, two Coloradans will help us question the governor. One is a homeowner, afraid to lose the peace and quiet she imagined when she bought her place. The other is a mineral rights owner. Let's meet him first. Neil Ray is a lifelong Coloradan whose connections to the energy industry stretch back a century. CPR's Ben Marcus has this profile. In the early 1900s, prospectors found oil in the Rangeley Field in western Colorado. Not long after, Neil Ray's wife's grandfather came to the state to work in the field. He was one of the early drilling pioneers in Colorado. And did an awful lot of uh, wildcatting and prospecting and turned turned what he did into a fairly lucrative business. Ray's family is one of those who actually make money off their mineral rights. Still, he worked for many years at the Rocky Mountain News printing plant in Denver. He eventually retired and now manages his family's mineral rights. He is genuinely amazed at the technological innovations in the industry, like horizontal drilling. And he takes pride in his family's history in the oil and gas business. But he admits that the political environment has shifted. It is very tense. In large part because of the home explosion in Firestone that killed two people. He laments the loss of life, but he's also a realist. Accidents can happen everywhere, even at a newspaper printing plant. We were pretty good at the Rocky Mountain News in in our safety record, uh, but there were accidents. There's no doubt about that. Ray sits on the board of Vital for Colorado. That's a group backed by the drilling industry that spent big on recent municipal races in Broomfield and Aurora and others. He's also president of the Colorado Alliance for Mineral and Royalty Owners, which has lobbyists at the Capitol, and he expects them to be busy this session. More proposed restrictions on drilling are likely. Ray lives in a spacious ranch house in Littleton, and despite his connections to the oil and gas industry, he also understands why people are concerned. Well, I can tell you that if right outside my door here all of a sudden a drilling rig got up, I would be out there trying to make sure that it was as least an influence on my life as I could possibly make it. He says Colorado is a highly regulated state when it comes to drilling. He could support even more restrictions if they're based on data and scientific studies. But when people talk of outright drilling bans in their communities or statewide, that's when they lose it. That would make his property below the surface worthless. And Neil Ray says that is fundamentally unfair. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Meanwhile, Megan Townsend and her family bought their new home this fall. Days before they closed, they learned about a new drilling project nearby in Broomfield. CPR's energy reporter Grace Hood brings us their story. The Townsend's three-acre property looks across open fields. Snowy mountains are distant in the horizon, a quiet peacefulness. Megan and her husband, Hunter, moved with their two daughters this September. The goal was to have more space. You know, we have come to eat a lot of eggs. They've already expanded their backyard chicken coop. (laughs) Inside the Townsend's one-story ranch home, it's all action all the time. We want to jump up and down. No, let's not throw your hatchet. 
The Townsends know oil and gas drilling is part of living on the Front Range. They can see a beige tank battery from their dining room window. But new oil development next year will put multiple wells and well pads within a mile of their home. That means a new dirt road and industrial truck traffic 300 feet away. Hunter Townsend says the same thing that made their house desirable, open space near an urban corridor, is what attracts oil companies. It was kind of heartbreaking just because we love, we love this place, we love where we are. But where they are is complicated because it's right on a government border. That's the border between Broomfield County and Adams County. The Townsends live in unincorporated Adams County, which wasn't involved in negotiations over the new drilling project. The city and county of Broomfield worked for nearly two years with Denver-based extraction oil and gas to finalize the plan. Many local leaders say this is a successful model for local regulation. The plan will even plug and abandon dozens of older wells in the area. I wouldn't say we're necessarily fighting the project, but just trying to see how far away we can keep things. Some of the new wells will be just over 1,000 feet from the Townsend property. That's twice what the state requires. Extraction Oil and Gas says it'll work with new technologies to reduce noise and minimize inconvenience for residents. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Well, now Megan Townsend and Neil Ray, these Coloradans with very different concerns around fracking, put those concerns to Governor John Hickenlooper. We sat down together at the state capitol, and Townsend went first. Again, a late compromise in her neighboring county means she'll have a well about a thousand feet away. I guess my biggest question, knowing that gas and oil is a big part of our economy, and operators and, and mineral owners have a right to utilize those minerals. But now that we're getting closer and closer to that urban interface, how do you use your experience and knowledge to mitigate the tension that exists? Well, that's one of the thorniest issues I've had since right when I first ran for governor in 2010, right through till today, because I can see clearly both sides of the argument, right? Someone, some people who I think like yourself have moved more recently into a little further away from the urban cores is that happens more and more and more frequently, more and more property owners, people that in some cases have for generations owned mineral rights, in many cases, part of their retirement plans, uh, they become somehow imperiled. And that's the trick, uh, Public safety is always going to be our our priority. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that operators recover and extract natural resources as efficiently and safely as humanly possible, right? And we have worked, and we're lucky in Colorado because we do have some of the more responsible uh, natural resource extraction companies, and they are looking at using electric rigs, which are Mm -hmm. much quieter. They're looking at not working at night when they're close enough to where it would make a difference. Any rumblings of that near you, Megan? Um, Yes, actually, I was impressed with the work that Extraction and Broomfield actually did. Extraction Oil and Gas is the company here, and you live in Adams County near the Broomfield County line. Correct. Uh And and I was actually impressed by the process in which they went through and and tried to make sure they're using the, the best management practices. The hitch was suddenly at the very end, the sites changed. Uh, month and this before. happened pretty close to your closing. It did on the house. <laughs> it oh, did. It was a bit of a shock, and and so it's just taken some time to say, okay, I, I get it. 
However, we'd really, in our neighborhood, just like these to go back to the original sites. You know, the governor mentioned safety Mm -hmm. and public health. What concerns do you have about your safety or public health? Are those top of mind or not? Primarily, it's a quality of life issue during drilling. You know, once things go into production, I'm, I'm hopeful things will the way they were almost. There is a concern, I suppose, from a safety standpoint in terms of water. And it's rare, you know, to have a spill um, or for a well casing to rupture. But there's the small chance. My desire is to have these as far as possible. And I'll say that legally, extraction oil and gas has the right to be 500 feet from you. They agreed to Mm 1,000. That's great. Um, What what can you say, Governor, about water in particular? We don't see too often big spills. And when we do, you know, we've increased our fining capability up to $15,000 a day. In terms of casings breaking, we've only found one example where a casing broke. But doesn't mean to say people don't still worry about it. So, Neil, the governor mentioned those who have the rights beneath the land, the mineral rights, And that's true for you and your family. You collect royalties for 9,000 wells across the state. Uh, What would you like to say to the governor at this time when there is so much tension? Well, one of the worries that that I have is the issue of counties and municipalities trying to exert a local control that goes beyond their authority. Most of the time, mineral owners, royalty owners, do not live in the communities— that their minerals lie in. And therefore, they don't have a vote. But the homeowner living in that community does have a vote. And we're worried whether the state will continue to defend its police powers and its rights to preempt counties and municipalities from passing uh, overarching regulation. And those hydrocarbons that are underground are somebody's private property, and they're called that in the Constitution. We're not Russia. We're not China. We, we can't take property away from our citizens without good cause, and certainly not without compensating them, right? When a local municipality kind of ramps up and says, all right, we're going to ban fracking, what they're in essence doing is taking someone's private property. And so while I understand and I am very sympathetic to people that have moved into beautiful housing developments and they have the nice view. The trick here is to recognize that there's a balance. And I mean, if if more and more people want to have their little five-acre homestead, what happens then when someone wants to develop those minerals? And we should note that the trend of urban drilling seems to be increasing. A Denver Post analysis of pending and approved permits showed about twice as many were being taken out near towns than in more remote rural areas. Megan, go ahead. You wanted to interject. In this instance, there were better locations farther from homes. And then it got moved closer to a neighborhood that's frankly been there since the 70s. But I I think it's important to take a look probably from a state level because this was a, you know, a lot of news outlets said, oh, this is a border war, municipality against municipality. And this so I think Adams County again against r- Broomfield. Right. And I think it would have been helpful to really look at it from a state level. Governor, what do you and, say to that, to this, this notion that, you know, one county sort of stands up for itself and gets uh, drilling moved, and then that winds up spilling over perhaps into another? Well, what happened here, I think, where the drilling was going to occur, the county in which it was going to occur, they cut a deal and put the site of those drill rigs much further away from their residences, but pushed them closer to the border hmm. with Adams County so the people who lived in Adams County 
Uh, and I got calls from Adams County commissioners saying, what can you do about this? And, and we don't have power that we can exercise in this domain, but I think it's a legitimate question. And perhaps this session, we should look at legislation that compels when you're on boundaries between two counties, that both counties should be in the discussion and be able to make their case to the oil and gas company and make their case to the oil and gas conservation commission. Well, on the subject of local governments, I want to point to what happened in Broomfield earlier this month, the passage of what was called Question 301. And it says essentially that oil and gas development should only occur in a manner that does not adversely impact the health, safety, and welfare of Broomfield's residents. And voters approved it by 15 percentage points. Governor, the Colorado Supreme Court has previously ruled that state control of oil and gas development preempts local government's rights to control these activities. Is the state considering suing Broomfield over 301? It gets down to the language. I know we're looking at it. So you haven't ruled that out? Yeah. As I've said before, the worst position a governor can be in is suing one of your own municipalities or one of your own counties. that's, That's your family. That's who you are. If we can possibly avoid it, we can. Clearly, health and safety of these communities is our primary paramount concern. Megan, I'm curious. So you find out just before you close that these uh, wells are going to be closer than than you anticipated. Why did you decide to buy the house? Because you could have said, we're out. We could have. But uh, this was the, the perfect property, and there wasn't anything else anywhere nearby that suited us. You know, we didn't want to move my daughter out of her school. She loves it there. So we just said, you know what? Let's see what happens. It seems like Extraction's willing to work with the neighborhood. Hopefully things will work out and things will run smoothly. Now, Neil, you were saying that folks who own mineral rights often don't live where their mineral rights are. But I'd like you to put yourself in the shoes of someone who does live where there are mineral rights. Talk to me just like a little bit about that. Well, where I live, the, actually the railroad owns the minerals underneath the, the entire neighborhood where I live. What would happen if the railroad decided to come and develop in Beaumar, Colorado? And, this and is near start, Littleton, yeah. Yeah, near Littleton, start drilling wells there. The neighborhood would be in an uproar there would be probably about a third of the neighborhood that would take the attitude of, well, the railroad has the minerals and owns them and they have a right to them and let's figure out some other place for them to drill than rather right in our neighborhood. It'd be a mess, Mm. but I wouldn't like it. No, there's no doubt about it that, that for that six or eight months, there's production drilling going on. It is noisy. It is a lot of truck traffic. It is difficult on the roads. And it is a reality that there are places where it's not right to drill. And Colorado's court cases talk about reasonable accommodation and reasonable access. And that's all right with me. I think what surprises me about what I'm hearing here is that the oil and gas debate is so often one side pitted against the other. I have heard you, Megan, say this is an important part of the economy. Uh, Indeed, oil and gas generated $30 billion last year, was responsible for 112,000 jobs directly and indirectly. And then I hear you, Neil, saying, I wouldn't love it if there were drilling right next to my house. And of course, there are places where it, it doesn't make sense. The economy of the state is a kind of an interesting thing to talk about with oil and gas. With severance tax, uh, 
the Department of Local Affairs gets quite a bit of money from severance tax. And I just want This wanted, benefits local communities. Yeah, and I wanted to just give a few of those communities. $84 million went out in DOLA grants in 2016. Salida, for instance, got $775,000 for a water treatment improvement. Westcliff, $200,000 for drainage improvement. Fraser, $31,000 for a broadband study. Hinsdale County, $375,000 for emergency services and communication improvement. Grants would be non-existent without the severance tax collected. Governor Hickenlooper, is this an intractable issue uh, at the end of your term? Might this still be unresolved? Oh, I think it almost certainly will still be unresolved in in terms of a final uh, getting to a solution where everyone feels, okay, I'm great with that. Let's wrap up on the bigger picture question about climate change, because uh, we've talked about the intricacies of the law in Colorado, what the Constitution says about, about mineral rights. Meanwhile, we know that fossil fuels burning adds to greenhouse gas and warms the planet. Where should that fit into this discussion, Neil? As a mineral rights owner, I'm, I'm eager to hear what you'd say. You're sitting in front of a governor who, uh, despite the United States leaving the Paris Climate Accord, has said we're going to fulfill the values of that international agreement. What's interesting about this hydrocarbon argument is that natural gas seems to have been responsible for fixing an awful lot of things in that regard. As a replacement for coal, as it's often said. And it's going to go further. And yet there are people who want solar and wind and who presumably envision a future in which you're not necessarily getting the royalties from your uh, mineral estate. Well, I have every confidence that three generations after me, there will still be drilling and, and natural gas and oil production because the varnish on these walls, the carpet that I'm standing on, the drugs that we take to lower our blood pressure, they all come from there. Governor, you used to be in the oil and gas industry, but do you see oil and gas as a fuel that gets Colorado to a renewable resource 100% as some in the governor's race are calling for? Or do you see it as a long-term part of Colorado's future? It's, it's hard to measure. And I agree with Neil that there are so many byproducts. The, the real question is, in terms of large scale, what is it going to look like as we get better with batteries? And at some point, are we going to start using wind, electricity generated by wind or solar to run our vehicles. You know, General Motors is now saying by 2025, they're going to have a model of every one of their vehicles will be electric. It's hard to predict how fast that's going to happen and whether it's going to be three generations uh, and we're still going to be uh, using some level of of crude oil. Do you foresee a day when you have to look at Neil or whoever's in your place and say, we're leaving those in the ground? Yeah, well, I think at some point that probably will happen. I think we will still have a significant amount of hydrocarbons in the mix for at least a a, a reasonable amount of time, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I do think that we will, one way or the other, have much cleaner air in 10 years, and we're going to have much less carbon emissions in 10 years. I mean, we don't have to get in a fight about climate change, but the greenhouse gas principle, if you look at how greenhouse works and why it heats up so much, it does seem to hold water from a technical application. Uh, And therefore, I think it's just natural. If it means we get cleaner air, cleaner water, and a cleaner environment in the process, who's going to argue with that if we can do it and and not cost more money? Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. 
our regular interview with Colorado's Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper, this time joined by two Coloradans with different perspectives on fracking, Megan Townsend and Neil Ray. Ray lives in Bomar near Littleton, and he's president of the Colorado Alliance of Mineral and Royalty Owners. Townsend is a physician's assistant and a member of Adams County Communities for Drilling Accountability Now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The fictional Western sheriff Walt Longmire is ending his television run. Netflix has released the sixth and final season of Longmire. This character lived on the page, though, before appearing on the small screen. He's the creation of Wyoming author Craig Johnson. We'll listen back to my interview with Johnson today, but let's set the scene first. Sheriff Longmire protects a county roughly the size of New Hampshire, one with its fair share of mayhem. Here's a clip from the TV show featuring Robert Taylor as Longmire and Lou Diamond Phillips as his friend Henry Standing Bear. I remember when I could count the number of murders in this county on one hand. Two at most. Now I got a multi-billion dollar drug cartel right in my backyard. To progress. It's a cancer, Henry. By the time you find it, it's often too late. Those words pack a real punch because Walt's wife died of cancer, and the void it leaves in him is a huge part of his character. Author Craig Johnson is with me in the CPR Performance Studio, and welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks for having me. How would you describe Walt Longmire? Generally, I always try and keep it to uh, just a couple of words. And the, the one word that immediately comes to mind is over. He's overweight, he's overage, he's overly depressed, but he still gets up in the morning and tries to do the job. And to me, that's, you know, where the true heroism lies rather than in, you know, the usual kind of, you know, crime fiction, you know, protagonist that you see or the, you know, the six foot two of twisted steel and sex appeal. Every woman wants him. Every man fears him. He can kill anyone with a number two Ticonderoga pencil in 3.2 seconds. You know, and in case you can't tell, that's the, the, the character that I hate more than any other, like probably in literature and in cinema too. So. Why do you loathe that character so much and embrace the flawed one? You know, it just seems like, you know, we're all kind of flawed. I mean, that's, that's the beauty, you know, of, of being human. And so the, the thought of trying to write, you know, a series of books, you know, or even, you know, just a single book, because when I started off um, with Walt, it was just a standalone book. The Cold Dish was just supposed to be a standalone novel. Um, the idea of, of, of that kind of a, you know, cartoon kind of character just really just didn't interest me at all. I mean, you know, the literature that I really enjoy are, you know, the characters that are damaged, you know, the ones that have um, cracks in the facade. I mean, you know, the the Jean Valjeans, you know, the, those type of characters like that are always going to be infinitely more interesting to me because what made them who they are? How did they become damaged, you know, and how do they deal with that damage as they move through their lives? Um, I just think that it's a lot more of a realistic uh, portrayal of, you know, of a human being. Jean Valjean from Les Miserables. And 
When did that first book come out? What year was that? Oh, five. Oh, five. So you have lived with this character for more than a decade now. I have. And I can say quite honestly that I'm not like Arthur Conan Doyle and ready to kill, uh, you know, my main character. <laughs> I got to admit that, you know, I mean, because he threw Sherlock off of, a, you know, of a, the Rhinesback Falls because he got so sick and tired of him being right all the time and, <laughs> and being narcissistic like that. But, you know, for me, the, the thing is, is Walt's good company. He's actually good company in a number of different ways. He's intelligent. You know, he's compassionate passionate. He's got a sense of humor, um, you know, all of those things like that. But he's also connected, you know, with his community. He's connected with his society, um, which is, I think, you know, one of the nice things about it, because there's that fallacy, I think, about, you know, uh, Western culture and that, you know, that a man's got to be a man and everybody takes care of their own. Anybody that knows anything about the West knows that you rely more, you know, on your neighbors, you know, in far-flung regions than anywhere else. I mean, you you can have a certain anonymity like that if you're living in an apartment building with 500 people in it like that. But if you live in a town of 25 like that, you can pretty much name all of your neighbors off pretty quick. And anybody that's ever gone through, you know, calving or branding season knows that you depend, you know, on your neighbors a great deal. And that's kind of why it was that I made Walt a sheriff was because it's it's the only elected law enforcement official in the United States. I mean, you know, you, 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 you have not only do you have to be a police officer, but you have to be a politician to a certain extent. And it makes you much more connected, I think, you know, to the community and to that society whose laws that you're trying to police. You talk about a town of 25. You describe yourself as a cowboy from a town of 25. You cross Wyoming. (laughs) U-C-R-O-S-S. It sounds so perfect for a Western, like, (laughs) don't you cross me. Tell me about you cross and to what extent your own experience, also as a rancher. Right. It's not enough that you're a popular author. Well, you know, I mean, you know, I got to be honest with you. First off, there really aren't 25 people in you cross. You know, my wife and I sat down and did a head count one time while we we're sitting at the kitchen table, and we only came up with 19 people in you cross, including <laughs> the two of us. Like that. And so I think that we're still inflated from the last census, you know, but it costs a lot of money to change those signs. Like that. And so we're, we're still, you know, 25. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the crown jewel of UCL. LA area, you cross Claremont, Leiter, and Arveda. And uh, if you combine all of those towns together, you might have a population of about 350, 400. And so it's, it's, it's in many ways, um, very reflective of, you know, Absaroka County, the fictitious county um, that Walt polices. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty fantastic place to be, you know, as a writer like that, because, you know, when I'm down here in Denver, you know, my gosh, there's just so much to do and so much to see. I would be so distracted, I have to admit, like that, that, you know, for me, it works out being in that kind of an isolated kind of area like that. And uh, it's also good for me, too, in the sense that, you know, when you're when you ranch, you know, you really can't ignore the environment. I mean, you're actually a part of that environment, you know, on a full time basis. I mean, the first thing that I do is go down and shovel out the barn first thing in the morning and discuss with the horses what it is I'm going to be riding that day. And they're really great riding partners because they listen very intently, but they don't offer any advice, you know. And so um, it's turned out to be, you know, probably one of the, the greatest blessings of my life. Like that. As long as I can keep my Connecticut wife there, I'm, I'm pretty much okay. Your Connecticut <laughs> wife. So she moved from the East Coast. She did. That is awfully similar to a plot line <laughs> in the books and in the television series. Yeah, yeah. Which is essentially Longmire's deputy mm-hmm. comes to tiny 
well, tiny in population, vast in land, Absaroka County, mm-hmm. I think from Philadelphia. She does. And my wife spent the majority of her adult life in Philadelphia. And the more you find out about my personal life, the less impressed you're going to be with my writing ability. Um, this is Vic, by yeah. the way. The character <laughs> Vic. Vic Moretti. Is she, is she based on your wife? She is a great deal based on my wife, like at who, uh, who still roots for, let's see, the Phillies, the Eagles, and the Flyers. And if you were ever at our ranch when any of those teams are playing, and usually they don't play up to par, you would hear language that you have never heard before you know, coming out of a woman's mouth, I think. Like, and so one of my favorite quotes is the one from Wallace Stegner on teaching and writing fiction, where he says, you know, the greatest you know piece of fiction ever written is that disclaimer at the beginning of every book that says nobody in this book is based off of anybody alive or dead. I mean, what a crock that is. I mean, that's your job, you know, to go find people and put them in your books, you know. And I mean, you know, if somebody stands there and talks with me for like 30 seconds while I'm signing their book, they're taking their literary life in their hands. That's one of the great things, though, about being, you know, where it is that I am, like that in one of these, you know, really open spaces like that, because there are a lot of people, you know, who live in these, you know, far-flung rural areas that, you know, really, it would be difficult for them to live in the more mainstream aspects of society. Like that they live there because they are maybe a little bit different or a little odd or a little more independent and that type of thing. And that, that makes for really wonderful characters in novels. Well, it can be really unglamorous to be sheriff in a, <laughs> in a place like Absaroka County, at least as you portrayed in the books, to a certain extent, the, the TV show as well. Because you have to do a lot of grunt work. It's not glamorous at all. No, not at all. Like what, you, what does the job entail? Well, it, inv- it involves everything. It, being a police officer is like being anything else. I mean, you, you're, you're constantly, you know, wondering if you have enough food in the refrigerator to get you through the weekend. Um, you know, do these uniform pants make me look fat? You know, I mean, all those things that everybody else, you know, thinks about at the same time. And so for me, that's one of the things I, I always enjoy getting, you know, trying to get it right, you know, in the books is to make sure that, you know, that these are people first. And it, it, it goes across the board, you know, because uh, there's a large you know, Native American influence, you know, in the books, you know, because Absaroka County is right up there next to the Montana border. like that. And so you've got the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow Reservation immediately to the north. And, you know, it's important to, to have them be involved because, the, the, you know, they're an important part of that society. Like, and so it's always important for me to, to include those, those people in my books, but also to make sure that I give them their due, like that, that they're human beings before they are anything else. I want to ask you about the name Walt Longmire. Mm-hmm. Longmire, to me, says someone who is mired in something for a long time and, and kind of can't get out. Am I making too much of this name? No, you're right on the money. Um, one of my favorite authors is Charles Dickens. And uh, it seems to me that, like, you know, he always had a, an incredible knack of being able to give his characters names, you know, that described the character, you know, and so... Uriah Heep. Exactly, yeah, there, there's no end, you know, to all these wonderful names that he could come up with, and uh, and so for me, like, that, it was an opportunity to kind of, you know, give an indication of, you know, what Walt was really going to be like, and so, you know, he is kind of that sadder but wiser sheriff, you know, and the fact that his wife, you know, has died, you know, five years previous, you know, and he's not even aware of how many years it's been, but he's still mired in that sadness, you know, and it'll always be a part uh, of who he is. Like, he'll never, never completely get over that. And so, yeah, so that's, that's one of the, 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 the enjoyments, like, for, you know, for me and the readers, like, that is trying to come up with character names that I think will probably be a little bit descriptive. <laughs> Tell me about building a mystery. Do you start out knowing, you know, who, who done it mm-hmm. and why done it mm-hmm. and where and when and all of that? Uh, is that revealed to you over time? 
No, I'm not one of those authors. Every once in a while, I'll hear an author. Actually, one of my favorites, Tony Hillerman, used to say, I just start in and see where it goes. That just scares the living daylights out of me. There's no way I'd ever do that. That would be like you and I jumping in my truck out there and saying, let's go to Baltimore, but let's not take a map. I would say, you know, Ryan, why don't we take a map? Even if we don't use it, we, let's have it in the glove box there just in case we do need it. Like that. But uh, you know, for me, it's, it's important because I, I tend to you know, refer to what I write as socially responsible crime fiction. I mean, I'm I'm not really looking to, you know, stack up bodies like cordwood. I'm looking to, you know, have something kind of a message, something to say. And, you know, one of the biggest messages that you're giving away, you know, in a whodunit is who did it. You know, there's a an important message there like that. And, uh, you know, one of the, the, the most wonderful reviews I ever got on my books was somebody wrote that, uh, um, you know, Craig Johnson writes, you know, whodunits for people who by the time they get to the book don't give a damn who did it. Like, and so, mm. you know, for me, it, it's really – That is really, to say that the, the, the uh, evolving of the story, the characters themselves – become just as important oh, as yeah. who done it or more. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's always going to be a character-driven, you know, piece, you know, and then, you know, that that kind of you know, social commentary and, you know, and, uh, and and character commentary like that. I mean, I like to know all of those things before I sit down and start working on that book. I need to know who did it and, and why they did it. it. That immediately came to mind was uh, to pull a Vivaldi, um, you know, because each one of the books is kind of based in a season. Um, so it takes about four years for me to get through one year of Walt's life, you know, but the nice thing is, is that each one of the books is only about a, a couple of months at the most, you know, apart from the you know the, the previous book, and you know that gives you a continuity. I think like that that works pretty well with the books because I don't know how many times I've read a series of books, you know, and suddenly they'll leap two years, and I'm like, well, what the heck happened in those last mm. two years? You know, I want to know. And so for me, you know, it, it provides that kind of continuity for the characters and that development. And Walt, it takes me four years to get Walt through one year of his life, and you know, I, I'm four years older by the time that point comes around. <laughs> so at some point in time, I'm going to be older than. Walt. I don't know how much I like that idea, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Right. You're sort of aging in dog years. I am. Yeah. I am. <laughs> you, you mentioned Tony Hillerman, the great Western mystery writer. I think you met him in Santa Fe because you won an award. I did. Is that right? I did. I'd never, uh, I'd never written a short story in my life like that. And uh, my wife was actually, you know, sitting there with me and uh, at the kitchen table, and she was reading a, a copy of Cowboys and Indians magazine, and she spun it around and slipped it underneath my coffee mug like that. And only people who are married know how much you can ignore the term. You should do that. And uh, <laughs> and I looked at it, and it was a call for submissions to the Tony Hillerman Cowboys and Indians Short Story Award. Like, well, I just turned the magazine back around, slid it back over to her, and said, "Well, I've never written a short story, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that." Like that. Well, then I went down to the barn, and uh, we've been married long enough that she knows all she has to do is kind of plant the seed of the idea. And so I'm down there shoveling out the barn and anybody that's ever done that kind of work knows just how much free time you have in your mind when you're doing it and so I'm shoveling out the barn I'm thinking well if you were to write a short story what would you write so I I came up with this idea and uh, I wrote it you know and sent the darn thing in and promptly forgot about it and uh, it won it was a kind of a surprise, but it actually won. And uh, one of the things was I actually got to go have dinner with uh, with Tony Hillerman, and it was it was it was like a master's course uh, in mystery writing. Just that one evening of uh, of having dinner with him, and we became kind of fast friends, you know, for those last couple of years of his life. And he became kind of a, a wonderful mentor to me. The story was uh, Old Indian Trick, mm-hmm. which is the first story in the collection of short stories. So you you wrote more. 
I did. Jumping. Mostly, yeah. I did, it wasn't a plan to write more. I got to be honest with you. Um, what happened was, is I had this, this short story and I had a couple of thousand people on a newsletter that I send out every month. And so I thought, you know, the next Christmas came around and I thought, you know what, it'd be kind of nice to just give away that short story to everybody. Just, you know, just give it away like on Christmas Eve. And so I did. I just fired it off to everybody that was on the newsletter list. And uh, I don't think I realized how much trouble I was making for myself until the next Christmas rolled around and, and everybody, everybody started, waiting. yeah, waiting for uh-huh. the next Christmas story. Like, and I was like, oh, I haven't written one. Maybe I guess better sit down and write one. Like, and so I, I guess I've, I've written one, you know, one a year like that for the last 12 years. As a Christmas tradition. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, they're collected in, in this uh, book, Wait for Signs. Uh, old Indian Trek is really, really funny. <laughs> Can I <laughs> give you. it away? Sure, 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 sure. You can give it away. Oh, yeah, sure. It's 12 um, stories. Giving away one won't, won't make that big One twelfth of the book. Yeah, that's right. right. Um, I mean, what makes it so funny is that a crime has taken place um, at a diner, mm-hmm. and the person who held the diner up, I guess to bide his time before he he does the stick-up, pretends that he's applying for a job mm-hmm. and sits in, and fills out a job application, holds the place up. You know, everyone is uh, crazed about trying to find him and, and identify who this guy is. And one of your characters thinks to look mm-hmm. at the end of the story. At the application. At the job application. Mm-hmm. And it's got his name and his address and his phone number. The and idiot criminal <laughs> has written it all down. He has, but just by accident. Like, and so Lonnie Littlebird actually comes across that information before anybody else does, but he tries to play it off as an old Indian trick. Um, tries to portray it as like you know, some kind of like special, you know, connection that he has, you know, that he's able to surmise, you know, where this guy lives and what his name is and everything. Do you assume... Criminals are stupid or smart. <laughs> well, you know, if they wanted to work hard, they probably would go get a job like that. And so I, I think one of the things is, is an awful lot of the time, uh, you know, as a police officer, many times you know, you're waiting for your professor Moriarty who doesn't show up. And uh, an awful lot of the times, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with people who are desperate, you know, and sometimes make some you know, pretty foolish mistakes. And so that's just, you know, part of the, the aspects of the job that I think don't ever get covered an awful lot of the time, you know, because in, in crime fiction, you always want uh, you know, somebody who's going to be, you know, a, a good antagonist to your character. I mean, one of my favorite uh, uh, phrases is that uh, the Northern Cheyenne have a belief that uh, you can judge a man by the strength of his enemies like that. And uh, fortunately, in that particular situation, Walt wasn't you know challenged a great deal. But right. uh, there are plenty of other opportunities for him to be challenged as the books move on. Let's talk about the adaptation of Longmire for television. The series began on A&E. It's now on Netflix. I guess I want to understand how your stories are adapted for TV. Obviously, the show has its own writers. Mm -hmm. So to what extent do they rely on your stories as, you know, the Bible and adapt them? To what extent are their liberties taken? Well, it, it varies. Like, you know, there are some episodes that are taken almost completely from some of the books. But it's very difficult, especially in those first couple of years, you know, when we were on basic cable. Because, you know, we were kind of harnessed into that 42-minute cable format. And that, that it's, it's very difficult. I was very happy whenever the producers told me. They said, it's very – you don't write books that are easily encapsulated in a 42-minute format. And I'm, I'm kind of proud of that, to be honest with you. Yeah, I can understand. And, uh, and so what they do is a lot of times they'll take bits and pieces, sometimes even the smallest pieces of the books. And they'll take off and do an entire episode based on those. And then there are also, you know, storylines that they have to come up with um, all on their own. Like that because uh, I think I had written seven novels. Um, whenever Warner Brothers got in touch with me. That was kind of a, a mindset, you know, that I had to change a little bit because I'd always, you know, hoped, you know, that uh, that maybe, you know, the first novel, of Cold Dish, would end up being a, uh, a feature film like that. But, you know, I knew what the odds against it, you know, were. 
I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like an awful lot of the time, um, if it's a, you know, a storyline that deals with more mature themes like that, you know, that's not about space vampires or something, you know, the movie lasts about maybe a week, you know, in the movie theaters and then it's gone, you know, and in the bargain bin at the discount stores. And so I didn't know how much good that was actually going to do me as an author, because, you know, in the final analysis, you know, I'm a, I'm a cowboy writer in a town of 25, like, and I'm look, not looking to move to either LA or New York. And so for me, it's always about, you know, visibility for the books. And I started thinking, well, you know what, a TV show you know, is up there every week, you know, and that might, you know, draw in a little bit more of an audience over a period of time. And as it turned out, you know, we actually became the highest rated scripted drama in the cable network uh, that we were on uh, in their history, which was, you know, kind of wonderful. And then when they took it into their heads, you know, to actually cancel the highest rated scripted drama that they ever had, we (laughs) were marvelous enough like that, that that Netflix kind of stepped in the 600 pound gorilla in the room and said, we'll take this from here. And so, you know, we've been trending on Netflix and it's been a pretty wonderful success on Netflix, too. And that allows you to have a fuller, something closer to a full hour. It does. It does. And you watch those, and you can pause, and you can go back. And so I suppose that means that the episodes don't have to stand alone so much. Exactly. It, it can be more serial. Exactly. And that, that, that's really been kind of wonderful to see like that because uh, going from like, you know, cable episodes, it's almost now as if they're almost these miniature movies um, on Netflix, which is really kind of nice because it really gives the actors and the directors and the producers, uh, the writers and everybody a little bit more room to breathe. You started our conversation by describing Walt Longmire as overaged, overweight, overworked something <laughs> but robert taylor who plays him is kind of a hunk you know he like, is he is he's uh he he's you know I, I haven't had very many like you know female viewers complain about robert taylor i have to say quite honestly that they you know they they, they seem to enjoy his portrayal like that and uh, i think we know a lot of times you know it's it's going to be a different kind of dynamic um you know what works you know in a book doesn't necessarily work you know in a television show and i think i was kind of open to the idea that they were going to have to make some changes like and i remember discussing with the producers uh, greer shepherd and hunt baldwin john coveney like that and uh, one of the first conversations i had with them they said you know well we're thinking about making walt and henry about 10 years younger than they are in the books and i had the immediate horrible redneck cowboy author response where i was like well now why are we doing that and they said well because we'd really like the show to run for about 10 years and we'd rather not have them on walkers by the time we get to the end <laughs> and i had a hard time arguing with the logic of that it seemed to make a lot of sense like and so uh that kind of led you know to some some interesting casting developments and then it was also interesting to me too because i i talked with a lot of authors who'd had you know things done in hollywood and uh it's like any other industry i mean it's always going to you know depend on who it is that you're you know you're working with as to the quality of of that relationship you know and i i was i've been very very fortunate and the people that i'm working with are just really extraordinarily concerned about you know the the timber um of the television show that it captured the feel of the books, you know, in the sense of the books. And even to the point where they actually sent me DVDs of the auditions for the actors, you know, that they were looking at. And that was just kind of crazy like that because I just, you know, I didn't think in any way, shape or form that I was going to have to, you know, look at actors and see, you know, who it was that, you know, that they were you know thinking of using. And certainly I didn't have, you know, final say over who it was that they were going to cast. But I was very fortunate in the sense that just about every single actor that I wanted actually got the roles. 
And uh, my wife and I are sitting there, you know, at the ranch, you know, watching these DVD auditions, you know, that came from Warner Brothers. And uh, I remember, you know, looking at Robert Taylor, you know, when he was doing the audition for Walt. And, you know, there were a couple of things I really liked about him. Like he was a big guy, he's rangy. Um, he had lines on his face. He looked like he had miles on him. He looked like he had actually, mm-hmm. you know, done something, you know, for a living, you know, and he had, you know, Robert actually had, you know, a number of different careers. <clears throat> but, um, I was just amazed by the, the, the audition that he had. The thing that kind of sealed the deal for me was is that uh, he took his hat off, you know, in the audition. It's a you know, part where he's going into this woman's house. He's never met her before. He doesn't know her like that. And he actually took his hat off when he met her. And I thought, this is probably our guy. And so I was kind of on board with Robert Taylor at that point in time. But it was about then that, you know, my wife sitting behind me at the kitchen table said, oh, my. And I turned around and looked at her and she says, he's handsome. <laughs> and so I'm looking at Robert Taylor and looking at her and she goes, he's kind of like a TV version of you, taller, better looking with a better voice. So I'm not as big of a fan of Robert Taylor as I used to be. Like, but, you know, man. <laughs> And the act of him taking off his his hat, that politeness. Well, and it's just – it goes back to a term that like, you know, is really kind of, you know, in, in modern society lost a lot of its impact, you know, but it's uh, decency. You know, he's a decent guy. Like that he cares about the people that are in his county. And, and in many ways, you know, that's one of the best aspects um, of a good police officer is that they care. A lot of times when I was talking, because uh, I do a lot of a lot of interviews and a lot of conversations, you know, with retired older sheriffs, like that. And uh, the term that I kept hearing from a lot of these older sheriffs was "my people, my people." You know, and uh, they, they really consider you know those people that live in their county to be a responsibility of theirs personally, and uh, and and that's that's kind of speaks to the embodiment of who Walt is. Mm. Of course, now you're writing books, and there is uh, an embodiment of, of Walt Longmire on TV. Oh, yeah. So do you picture him as Robert Taylor, or do you picture him as whatever you pictured him before Robert Taylor came along? Let me tell you, I can give you one instance to give you an idea of how difficult that is. I was actually doing a, uh, a bookstore out on Sunset Boulevard, you know, whenever the TV show was just starting, and right across the street from the bookstore where I was doing my event was an eight-story Walt Longmire. There was Robert Taylor on the side of a building, like eight <laughs> stories high, watching me do this, you know, book event, you know, in this little bookstore in Los Angeles. And, and uh, you know, it, it's a powerful medium. It's an incredibly powerful medium. But I have to admit that, um, I mean, I'd written about seven books, you know, before, you know, Warner Brothers got in touch with me. And so, you know, so many of the characters were so embedded um, in my head, because so many of them were based off of friends and family and neighbors and these people I'd worked with, that no, they're they're pretty much, you know, so strong in my head that, that the actors are wonderful, but they really don't encroach all of that much. The show is not shot in Wyoming. No. Where is it shot? Actually, down in New Mexico, in and around uh, Santa Fe. Um, one of the the interesting things is, of course, like a, they, they, you know, when you film a show like Longmire, um, it's not like a feature film, so it's not like they can fly in and um, film for like three days with all of their equipment, and all their crews, and then they're gone. It's kind of like maneuvers of the Eighth Army. Um, you know, Longmire films for like three to four months. And so, you know, it is like an occupying army when they come in like that. And so they basically need all of the resources that really are not available in Wyoming. It's one of the difficulties that we have there and that we don't have sound stages. We don't have crews. We don't have a lot of those things. The other thing is, is they start filming in March. And uh, anybody that's ever been in Wyoming in March knows that that could sometimes be, you know, a little bit difficult, you know, especially <laughs> since the majority of the show is filmed out of doors. You know, it's kind of the the, the joy of the show is, is that, you know, it's, it's a, a lot of it is filmed out of doors. It's not filmed – 
inside like that. And so uh, New Mexico has a very aggressive um, film commission. And so, you know, they did have all of those advantages. So that's that's where we ended up was in New Mexico. Because they lured Breaking Bad and In Plain Sight as well. Um, does does New Mexico pass well for Wyoming? Uh, you know what? They do a pretty good job like that because they, they we sent them like about 3,000 photographs um, of that whole area up there around the Bighorn Mountains near the Montana border like that and down on the Powder River country and all of those places. And they did a pretty magnificent job of, uh, of, of discovering places that, you know, could really, you know, pass for Wyoming. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Ryan. Craig Johnson is author of the Walt Longmire series. It inspired the TV show Longmire, and Netflix just released the final season. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. 